Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are in the first triennial year, right, of the cycle. Uh, with Parsha Yitro, however, we read the whole Parsha every year. Uh, I don't know if it's because it's shorter, but like if you look at how it's laid out in Hebcal which is where we go to find the triennial reading, or in our prayer book it has it. It, it. It's the full Kriya. It gives you the same verses, year one, two, and three. So we wind up seeing this text a lot, this opening text of what's happening with Yitro and Moshe, uh, and then, of course, uh, the rest of the chap, the rest of the uh, Parsha is the revelation at Sinai. So the Israelites, we last week, uh, we talked about the Israelites being trapped between the sea and Pharaoh. They moved through the sea and they have moved on to Sinai, to the mountain, which is also called what? Horeb. In Deuteronomy, it's called Horeb. The revelation is at Horeb. Uh, here it's called Sinai. So there are two traditions, two traditions about what the name of the site, the mountain, is where the people receive revelation. I'm sorry? Twin Peaks? So perhaps that's one explanation that people give for why both names appear. It's two variant traditions about what it was called. We do have Twin Peaks of right Ebal and Grizim, where they do a ritual where it's clearly... There's no mention of two mountains anywhere in the text. It says the mountain, Hahar. So the mountain um, is called different things by variant traditions, um, unless we want to get creative and say, it's actually two mountains next to each other. One's Horev, one's a perfectly wonderful. Chapter 18, everybody there? All right, let's start. <coughs> Jethro, priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, God's people, how Adonai had brought Israel out from Egypt. So Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took Zipporah, Moses' wife, after she'd been sent home, and her two sons, of whom one was named Gershom, that is to say, I have been a stranger in a foreign land, and the other was named Eliezer, meaning my ancestors, God was my help delivering me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought Moses' son and wife, sons and wife to him in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. He sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law. He bowed low and kissed him. Each asked after the other's welfare, and they went into the tent. All right. Moshe is with the people uh, in the Midbar, in the wilderness, and Yitro, his father-in-law, right, who is the high priest of Midian, clearly has sent word that he's coming to see Moshe, and he seems to have Sipporah and Moshe's two sons with him. We don't know why. We don't get this episode anywhere in Torah, possibly when we have that whole bridegroom of blood incident that's now only a couple of verses long, possibly uh, more of that story uh, is lost to us that explained Tipora and the boys going back to Midian. Because they set out with Moses to go to Egypt. 
Because um, clearly somewhere along the way, she's sent back. So there's lots of Midrashim that suggests that, that there's intervention. Uh, and someone says to Moshe, this is not a good idea to take your wife and two sons into what is possibly an extraordinarily dangerous situation. Um, he says, her two sons. Mm-hmm. Your two sons. Yep. Curious. Curious. Mm-hmm. Good close reading, Ruben. So it's, uh, it's clear that, that we're dealing with his wife. We're clear that we're dealing with the mother of his sons, right? So it's very clear that, that this is, right? Who is coming to meet Moshe? There are lots of discussions about where this episode belongs. This episode is most likely out of place, and even the early rabbis understood that. Even in early commentary, we have uh, people talking about that, that this can't be before Revelation because it says, as we're going to see, it says too many things that imply what has happened after <coughs> Revelation. So uh, in, in any case, uh, we have this meeting between Yitro and Moshe. Moshe clearly respecting his father-in-law's status, goes out to meet his father-in-law, or he doesn't wait for his father-in-law to come to him. He goes out to meet his father-in-law and bows low, right, forehead to the ground, uh, and kisses them. They ask after one another's welfare, and they move into the tent. All right, verse 8. Moses then recounted to his father-in-law everything that Adonai had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardships that had befallen them on the way and how Adonai had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced all over all the kindness that Adonai had shown Israel when delivering them from the Egyptians. Blessed be Adonai, Jethro said, who delivered you from the Egyptians and from Pharaoh and who delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that Adonai is greater than all gods, yes, by the result of their very schemes against the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices for God. And Aaron became, came with all the elders of Israel to partake of the meal before God with Moses' father-in-law. So this is one of the clues that the commentators point to, that if there's an altar and they're offering a sacrifice on the altar, this could only be after the instructions for doing that would have been given. Um, but you know, we've seen certainly other... Noah offers a sacrifice as soon as he gets off the ark. Um, but it's one of the places the commentators look to say that they wouldn't have built an altar. They wouldn't have had an altar. They wouldn't have known what to do with it or whatever had, had the instruction not already been given. Uh, in any case, we now get the interaction before between Yitro and Moshe. It is not uncommon for a non-Israelite to reference Yudhei when blessing or dealing with Israelites. So if you're going to somewhere where they worship Ishtar, you would say, may Ishtar bless you and right, great, be, great is Ishtar who has given you such benefaction, right, it, 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 it's not, it looks weird to us that the high priest of Midian would be invoking Yudhei but it would not have been the case, synchronistic worship was very common in the ancient Near East, so that you had your god, but you also acknowledged that other people had their gods, gods tended to, to be local, so it was, if you were in someone else's territory, it was very possible that the, the, the god of that place was the god you would invoke. But he went on to say, now I know that 
Yudhe is greater than all the other gods. Right. That was a surprise. That's what surprised me. Right. So a a very big statement that this this Yudhe Vafe is no slacker. Right. Uh, Thirteen. But neither, neither was he all benign. I mean, when he he said to Pharaoh, he hadn't Pharaoh's heart, which is required ten plagues instead of one, which he, if he hadn't hardened his heart. And this is sort of, it's right, the greater the miracles, the more people remember and told generations to generations. But hardening the heart was very upset, upsetting to me. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and, and yet here, this is not, we thank the Lord, is what it says here, and, and ignores the, uh, the ploy that uh, God used. Well, th- this is Yitro talking. So Yitro doesn't well, know anything know about God hardening anybody's mm-hmm. heart. The only one that knows that is God and the omniscient narrator. The omniscient narrator tells us that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But, right, and presumably Moshe knows it because God says to Moshe, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. Um, but there would no, be no reason Yitro would know that. Well, also he says right. greater, meaning greater, like he did more stuff than anybody else, doesn't necessarily mean that he was better. He says, he says now the Lord is greater than all the gods, meaning he's well, more powerful Yes, but in one of the powers was hardening the heart, which still obsessed me. I, I get it. I get it. And, and maybe next year when we come back around to this, George, you will remind me and we'll spend some more time, um, you know, on, on how the rabbis and people since the classical rabbinic period, how they've dealt with that. Because they, they, we have, we, it's there and people have had to deal with it. Right? So it's, there's, there's a lot that's been written. So we can, we can definitely, Spend some time looking at the hardening of the heart. All right, 13. Next day, Moses sat as magistrate among the people while the people stood about Moses from morning until evening. But when Moses' father-in-law saw how much he had to do for the people, he said, what is this thing that you are doing to the people? Why, are you, why do you act alone while all the people stand about you from morning till evening? Moses replied to his father-in-law, it is because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, it comes before me, and I decide between one person and another, and I make known the laws and teachings of God. So here comes Yitro, watching Moses do his job. Moses gets up and goes to work in the morning. His father-in-law observes and sees that Moshe, Moshe has all the people standing around him from morning until evening. So all day long, people are coming to Moshe, to have things adjudicated for them. When Moshe's father-in-law saw how much he had to do for the people, he said, what is this thing that you are doing to the people? Who died made you king? Aha. (laughs) Yitro is implying here that what Moshe is doing is bad for the people. Not just bad. It doesn't start with bad for Moshe, that he's working too hard. It starts with, this is not good for the people. What is this thing that you're doing to the people? Why do you act alone while all the people stand about you from morning till evening? What's Yitro's criticism? He needs organization. He needs, he needs people working, doing things. How, delegate. He needs to delegate. I, 
How come? How come? Yitro is an experienced person. He's older. He's been a leader among the people he lives with. And Moses listens to him. And Moses understands that, that he's got wisdom to share and experience to share. Well, it also smacks of Pharaoh. And, you know, <clears throat> the one place that rules come from is from Pharaoh. You know, there's, there's, no, there's no democracy. There's no other decision makers. There's so presumably kind of, Moshe yeah. is adjudicating law given to him by God. But it, I think it says it right there. You are... are uh, uh, Yitro might be saying, are you trying to be God to these people? So maybe the fact that the people only get the law adjudicated through Moshe sets Moshe up to be a little too pharaoh-y, right? A little too, that he's the only point that, right? The only arbiter and with an invisible God that only talks to Moses, right? It can start to look a little... Hmm? Like Jesus, I'm just saying it could be analogous. Like Jesus is the messenger of God, and Moses is the. How different religions view that person as. So that the danger becomes that Moshe himself is deified. Is what I hear you saying? Because because Moshe is a prophet, right? right. Just like Jesus. Right. That um, is what I heard you say, right? That, like Jesus, right, right. it's that you speak for God. That the what can happen as we see in the case of Jesus is that you can take that person and and if they're too close to the Godhead, you they can be conflated. And there seems to be a the Yucho seems to get it that that it's this is not good for the people. I just read this as a self help book for CEOs. <laughs> you delegate authority. You give. Yeah. You have this hierarchy, and, and each person has their responsibility, and they feel more engaged in the whole enterprise. So, part of why it's not good for the people is because the people are not participating with any level of responsibility. Exactly. That they don't get to employ their own minds, talents, thoughts decision-making abilities, they don't, the people are not accessed. They're not participating in a way that is meaningful, right, in this whole process. So that's one, another way it's not good for the people. So it's not good for the people that Moshe becomes a little too godlike. It's not okay for the people that their talents and, and, you know, whatever are not tapped. Why else is this bad for the people? He's not teaching the people how to take responsibility for themselves. They're not taking responsibility at all? I was just thinking in general, societies work better when more people participate. More people have buy-in. More people have buy-in. More people feel a sense of ownership, a sense of responsibility for the whole project. Mm-hmm. It's sort of reminiscent of when they were slaves in Egypt. I mean, they're just not... They're not independent, and they're not... They don't have any feeling of self-worth. So a major difference between a free people and slaves is that they participate in their own society, right? And the the discussion about what goes and doesn't go. This model isn't sustainable for the people or for Moshe. And why not for the people? There's one obvious thing for me that, like, about why it's not good for the people. Why is it not sustainable for the people? One of the reasons is that if they're literally standing there from morning till night, they can't do anything else. Correct. So this, this, so this is 
part of why I think it's not good for the people is because in Moshe refusing to allow anyone else to adjudicate, people have to stand around all day long waiting to get to him. It's not fair to the people that that they don't have a local court where they can just get something dealt with. They have to go to the DMV, <laughs> right? And like, who wants to go to the DMV? Every day. Every every day, they have to go to the DMV. Like, that's like a, a vision of hell, right? It's like, you, know, you wake up every day and you have to go to the DMV. And um, no one wants to go to the DMV. So the other danger is they don't. The other danger is they're, if they're going to have to stand around waiting for Moses all day, they work it out on their own, which... Right? Might not be such a good thing. It means whoever's the tallest, biggest bully wins. And so I think on there are many levels this is not good. Forget sustainable. It's not even a good model, is what Yitro's saying. This is not good. What is this thing that you were doing to the people? Why you act alone while the people stand around you? Moses replies, because I have to go before God to understand what I need to do. Elena, 17. But Moses' father-in-law said to him, the thing you're doing is not right. You will surely wear yourself out and these people as well. For the task is too heavy for you. You cannot do it alone. Now listen to me. I will give you counsel and God will be with you. You represent the people before God. You bring the disputes before God and enjoin upon them the laws and the teachings and make known to them the way that they are to go and the practices they are to follow. You shall also seek out from among all the people capable individuals who fear God, trustworthy ones who spurn ill-gotten gain. Set these over them as chiefs of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Have them bring every major dispute to you, but let them decide every minor dispute themselves. Make it easier for yourself by letting them share the burden with you. If you do this and God also commands you, you will be able to bear up and all these people will, too, will go home unwearied. All right. So we get, we get Yitro saying, right, that you, you won't make it. Like, you may not like this, you may not want to hear this, you may not want to change how this is going, but you will not survive this <laughs> right so don't think it's possible to, to continue this way say no thank you for your advice but but i think this is working just fine right it, it's not as we said sustainable you're going to wear yourself out and these people as well you're going to exhaust the people who have to wait around all day for you it's too heavy for you You can't do it alone listen to me i'm going to give you counsel god will be god and may god be with you um so another place that people are pointing to to say you you give the people the laws and teachings. Well, if, if you haven't had revelation, you don't have laws and teachings uh, yet, right? So you shall also seek uh, out from among them who who are the people who are going to be qualified. Anshe Chayil. We're in verse twenty-one. Anshe Chayil. Rita, what's Anshe Chayil? Sort of soldiers. Almost. So military, Chayil, isn't it? So, what are the qualities that we generally associate with someone who's in the military? Valor, strength, valor, courage, discipline, bravery. I mean, if you're going to lead Jews, you better be brave, right? It's, it takes a lot of courage to 
lead Jews. And we always say Jewish, Jewish leaders. We have to put leaders in quotation marks. This is a personal experience. <laughs> just saying. Um, just saying. There's a, there's a t-shirt that I want that says, um, they are my people. I am their leader. I must go after them. <laughs> I'm Shechayo, brave, brave souls. Year A Elohim, those who fear or are in awe of God. Right? So these are these are qualities you have to have. Anshe Emet. What's Emet? Truth. So Anshe Emet means people of truth, meaning they are honest. Right? They're forthright. You can count on right that they're not going to lead people astray. Son a vatsa. Those who hate um that's not a great English that's great. Ill gotten game. So those who hate um corruption right that are not going to be corrupt. They're not going to cheat. We're not going to cheat from material wealth. Who are not going to skim Right, who are not going to have deals go their way so that their towers get built or whatever needs to happen. Um, so this, so these are the qualities that it seems uh, Yitro understands are the ones that will make successful leaders. And then you're going to set over them. You've, so then now you've got leaders for tens, fifties, hundreds, thousands, and the Moshe becomes the Supreme Court. But this is setting up essentially a judiciary, because this is this is about when people have a dispute. That's why they're coming to Moshe because there's a dispute, and so this is a setting up the judiciary. It is a very early example of a judiciary that works, right? That that you have smaller courts and things get kicked up to higher courts and then are finally adjudicated by the supreme court, supreme. Authority, in this case, Moshe through God. We have to be clear. It's not Moshe. It's Moshe interpreting God's laws and, right, and all of that. All right. Then you will make it, Yitro says, right? You will be able to bear up. And all these people, too, will go home unwearied. We, people tend to focus on Yitro says, Moshe, you're going to burn out. You can't do it alone. I I hear over and over and over Yitro saying this is bad for the people. This they are weary. This is going to wear them out. It's not good for them. And yes, of course, Moshe. But Moshe's health is mentioned once, but so many times Yitro men, mentions that this is not good. It's not a good model for the people. It's not a good model for society. It, it's not a healthy society. And fortunately, Moses is who he is. And so verse 24. Oh, Moses heeded his father-in-law and did just as he had said. Moses chose capable individuals out of all Israel and appointed them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. And they judged the people at all times. The difficult matters they would bring to Moses and all the minor matters they would decide themselves. Then Moses bade his father-in-law farewell and he went on his way to his own land. All right. Now we come to a completely other scene. So this is divided by chapter 18 and then what happens next, which is the covenant at Sinai. Yeah. 19. 
On the new, on the third new moon after the Israelites had gone forth from the land of Egypt, on that very day they entered the wilderness of Sinai. Having journeyed from Rephidim, they entered the wilderness of Sinai and encamped in the wilderness. Israel encamped there in front of the mountain, and Moses went up to God. Adonai called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus shall you say to the house of Jacob, and declare to the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to me. Now then, if you will obey me faithfully and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. Indeed, all the earth is mine, but you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the children of Israel. So he Moshe to speak to the people to say, you've seen what I, God, have done, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to me. Now, if you will faithfully obey me faithfully and keep my covenant, you shall be my people. This is an offer. If you accept the covenant, then you will be my treasured possession among the peoples. All of the earth is mine, meaning I'm the God for all of the earth. It's not saying I won't be their God, right? It's saying all of the earth is mine, but you will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are words that have rung down throughout it's a the pretty, millennia. Pretty clear statement, though, of a chosen people. It is definitely a story told by a certain people who claim a special relationship to the universal God, for sure. So how does Reconstructionism deal with that particular passage? We, got, we get rid of chosenness as something that's meaningful for us. Doesn't mean it's not part of our heritage. Okay. Right? Mm-hmm. This is how they understood it. Reconstructing says we take what we're given and we reconstruct it. Well, and actually, we choose to re-accept the covenant in our own lives of, of course. So, so do we have a covenant? Of course, we have a covenant. Or, or what's the point, right? So, the 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 point is, Reconstructionism doesn't believe that's an exclusive covenant. That it doesn't mean other peoples don't have their own covenants with the one God. Or that we can choose not to have the covenant with, for our own lives. Well, for sure, we, we can. We choose constantly. We, we have to reselect. That, that's an interesting, it's an interesting theological question because most of the time we have translated this to mean we don't have an option. We are bound by the covenant. We don't get to opt out. You can disobey. You can break the law. But the covenant remains. But the covenant remains. You were bound by your ancestors at Sinai. You don't get to opt out. So, of course we know now that Realistically speaking, every Jew chooses, is a Jew by choice, and chooses every day to opt in. Traditionally, we've understood that the covenant was made by our ancestors. It is binding on every generation of anyone who was ever going to be Jewish. And we then get to decide what that means, right? Do I care that I'm bound by a covenant? Um, there's something important to me about that idea being that we are bound by something outside of our own choosing in a way, if that, if that makes sense. If you're going to play devil's advocate and you're going to look at this as the way we say every year, we, when, we do, when, we, when we do pay stock, we say um, we're learning it as if it's today. You could say, um, if you obey me faithfully, 
So you could say that if you're looking at it in today, if I choose not to obey you faithfully, then I don't take on the covenant. But it doesn't mean the covenant's not there. Correct. It means you're not you're not agreeing with. It means it. you're breaking the covenant. <clears throat> But th- th- in other words, oh, this is seen yeah. as this is seen as having happened already. Right? They said yes. Okay. They said yes, and because and you're we're going to see they said yes, and now it's bind on all y'all who are attendants of Vim Hayom Kuchem. All y'all standing here today, those of you who are here today, and those of you who are not here this day, are bound by the covenant. Yes. All right, and. And of course, we know that I'm talking mythically, yes? Like, we're clear? That I mean this as our sacred mythology. I don't, I don't, I don't need a people to have stood anywhere and heard anything, right? We're, and we're gonna. This is a statement of, of God, too. This is a statement of who and what God is. Because it's beyond our personal selves. It's Correct. greater than ourselves. Correct. Correct. I, I, if I could, uh, always have a problem with people having a problem with this, <laughs> with this verse because it is a secular, uh, treasured, uh, precious people. And I always look at it as like God saying to one child, you're my precious child. And then saying to the other one, you're my precious child. It's, it's, he never said, I'm having no other precious children. It's just that it's saying in order for us to be in relationship, like older child, you have to do X, Y, Z. And this child's going to do A, B, C. But I don't see why anybody should feel left out of it just because right now it's saying Israel is a, a treasured people. Well, and, and being a nation of priests are you isn't the only always child? pretty. Child. No, I'm not. But I, I'm just saying there's a lot of responsibility given, you know, yes. being the oldest child. You know? So, the, so that's it's very reconstructionist. That's well, very reconstructionist. Okay, so we're we're a treasured people. So are other peoples yeah. treasured by God, and they can be t- to God in a in another way. In there. It doesn't no, it's say you're also treasured, and they'll also be that's something that's not in the book. It's not their book, but but we don't know what God thought about all the other people. No, we don't. But I'm just saying that it's it's not. I'm saying a young that child. It does say all the all the earth is mine. So the Jewish, in some ways, is you. Right now is the time for our covenant. We're we're getting the covenant. This is it. So he's saying these, this is part of the deal. So that so so to to Judith's point, this is later interpreted. By the words, Asher Bacharbanu Mikol Ha'amim, who chose us from among all other people. So it does become understood as exclusive. It is very reconstructionist to go back. Where is that from? Is that rabbinic? Yes. The tradition does interpret this as an exclusive covenant, that there aren't covenants with other peoples, you know, that we were chosen from among all the other nations. It's very reconstructionist to go back to the text. And say, but it doesn't say Asher Bacharbanu in the text. And to say, okay, so we have this arrangement and other people's, you know, which is actually what I believe, that we have a very Jewish arrangement with the divine, with all of its complications and all of its craziness, because we're Jews. It's our deal. It's going to be complicated. Um, Other people have their covenant with the divine. Like, and that's. That's why I feel too. All right, so seven. 
Moses came and summoned the elders of the people and put them them all and put before them all that Adonai had commanded him. All the people answered as one, saying, All that Adonai has spoken we will do. And Moses brought back the people's words to Adonai, and Adonai said to Moses, I will come to you in a thick cloud in order that the people may hear when I speak with you and so trust you ever after. Then Moses reported to the the people's words to Adonai, and Adonai said to Moses, Go to the people and warn them to stay pure today and tomorrow. Let them wash their clothes. Let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day, Adonai will come down in the sight of all the people on Mount Sinai. You shall set bounds for the people round about, saying, Beware of going up to the mountain or touching the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death without being touched by either stoned, by by being either stoned or shot, a beast of person, a trespasser, shall not live. When the ram's horn sounds a long blast, they may go up on the mountain. All right. Moshe summons the elders and and tells the elders everything that that God has said to him so far. Uh, so presumably this is going through the elders. So Moshe took Yitro seriously and is... Including elders in, of the people. So all that's going to happen. Shofar. Oh, really? Everything God said to him, Shofar. Wow. Wow. There's no way to prepare for something. So, so he says uh, that to the elders. The elders presumably speak to the people, and the people answer. This is one of the most famous lines of Torah, is that they say, everything God has spoken we will do, right? And later we're going to hear Na'asev and Nishma. We will do it. Now let us hear what it is. This is the, this is the best it gets for the Jewish people. Is saying, we haven't even heard what it is yet, but we'll do it. We agree. And that's kind of where it ends, right? In terms of us being very successful. The question I have is, this is elders, but they've already appointed... Judges, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, is this the same group, or are these, in fact, the elders and not those chosen to be judges? It, it's not clear. It's not clear. But presumably he heard the criticism that he shouldn't do it, a lot of these things alone. Yeah. And it's not just that he'll be worn out. It's that, because here, this is not going to wear him out, right? It's that he needs to include more people in yeah. the... And delegate. And, and have them part of the process. Have them part of the experience. So Moshe comes. This is where it gets very confusing. Moshe's talking to God. He's talking to the people. He's getting to God. But then this is what we talked about before. If you're doing a scene where you're talking about something that's extraordinary, one of the ways that they depict that in Hebrew, in ancient Hebrew, is you make it kind of convoluted. So you're shaking the camera, right? Or you're... You know, pulling out of focus, right? You know, that it's not normal. This, this is not a normal event. So it's not going to read linearly and very clearly because it's supposed to, it's a way of communicating that this is really, really big and outside the norm. Put in a little magic, like lightning's going to strike. And so we've got to have magic, right? we got to have magical stuff going on. Absolutely. Uh, so that the God is going to come down on a, on the mountain in a cloud so that the people may hear when I speak with you. So the revelation is to be public. 
God is going to do this in front of all of the people. So it's not just Moshe saying anymore, God said. God's going to speak in front of the people that they can hear what God is saying to Moshe so that they know from now on that Moshe is in fact doing what he's doing because this is what God told him. The theophany was always to be public. This is out of anything we have ever seen in ancient or Eastern literature. The priests experience the theophany or the prophet experiences the theophany, not the people. This is happens nowhere else in ancient Near Eastern literature, religious literature. It doesn't happen anywhere else in other religions either. Yeah. It is There's always one guy. Everybody has to believe. That it is God. very rare that you have the God appearing, divinity appearing, and revealing the truth to all of the people. Christianity had to turn it into a man who spoke instead. Correct. Correct. Um, Yes. There is, I mean, there is in Christianity or earlier traditions of people receiving, right, on Pentecost, it was the, the idea that the Holy Spirit comes down and people begin to speak in tongues. So there, there is direct yeah. access. The Holy Spirit. The whole, to, right, the Holy Spirit. The Trinity to make it work. Well, the Trinity is late. Trinity is later. Early Christianity did not have a trinity, right? Early Christianity is, um, is, is a prophet, right? Like Moshe. The divinity of Jesus is very late. We have to remember that. The divinity of Jesus is very late. Six or eight hundred years later. A very long time. Yeah. Before Jesus is associated with divinity. I mean, that's a move, meaning that's a move that's made that was not Something the early Jesus people needed. Right. Jesus was not a Christian. Correct. Well, for sure he was not a Christian. As um, a result of the impact of Greek philosophy, you get Paul and others learned in Greek philosophy, so you have an attempt to define the deity in terms of potentiality and actuality, and then the third dimension, and so the, the triadism, the threeism, right. which is epitomizing the Trinity, is in fact. The process of Greek, of, of Greek definition. So there's many things that Christianity is exposed to that then, right, change it, and probably also the needs of the people change as they are in different cultures and different countries. And so what they need from this new religion changes as well. So perfect example is what comes out of um, Greek influence and and the needs of a Greek people to what they need from this new religion, what they need it to be. All right, but we digress a little bit. Uh, so they're to be there to stay pure, right? And so Moshe's talking to the men here. Yeah, I noticed in parentheses it says the the men among you shall not go near a woman. Right, because presumably it's silly to say to the women, "Don't go near a woman." Like what? Like right? So it, it must be talking to the men because it's talking about purity. My thought is that they're always talking to the men anyway. <laughs> Well, and this is, you know, this is one of the places that people, some people want to suggest that it was only the men who were going to receive revelation. Um, and one of my bat mitzvah students was very upset to see, you know, that commentary. You know, I said, but the tradition is that everyone was at Sinai. So people want to point here to make that case. That is not what the tradition. It's a generic term, men. No, here he's, ta- he's talking to men, uh, not to have sex. Oh, okay. Right? That's- 
having sex makes you, it renders you impure. They're, they're about to have a religious experience. They cannot be in a state of dysregularity, right? So seminal emission makes you in a state of dysregularity. So don't do that for the days prior to this amazing experience. You're not to be distracted. You're not to be doing other stuff right now. You're supposed to be paying attention and preparing yourself for this um, amazing, right? Is that the origin of the Mechitza? The origin of the Mechitza is in the purity laws. Yes, right. So, but the, this is, those are later. We get those in Leviticus. So the, the Mechitza is more from, from that set of laws, but certainly it, it informs this text that, um, and the mountain is taboo. The mountain is completely taboo. So you cannot touch it, neither can any other living thing. It, right? It, when something's taboo, it's punishable by death that you encroach on the sacred. You cannot encroach. We've talked about this before with the Mishkan. You cannot encroach on the sacred, right? It is the, the worst of the worst of the worst of the worst. So the mountain is the sacred? Yes. Mm-hmm. It's going to be supercharged. God is going to come down onto the mountain in a different way than normal and because God is everywhere. Uh, and it's, it's going to supercharge the mountain. Yes. So you can't, it's nuclear. It's tough on the animals. It's, it's very tough on the animals, right? So you better keep your animals where they belong. They're your responsibility. Your people, your family, and your animals are your responsibility, Does Mr. Israelite. The animals will have a kind of revelation What's implicit is they no living thing can encroach on the mountain. That that's that's and and live. And, and live. I mean that's what's been made and, very until, clear. Until the blast is over, presumably after that the animals can return. Yeah, yeah. A- after that the mountain is regular, mm-hmm. right? All right. So let's jump down to sixteen. On the third day, as morning dawned, there was thunder and lightning and a dense cloud upon the mountain and a very loud blast of the horn, and all the people who were in the camp trembled. Moses led the people out of the camp toward God, and they took their places at the foot of the mountain. Go on. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke, for Adonai had come down upon it in fire, the smoke rose like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled violently. The blare of the horn grew louder and louder. As Moses spoke, God answered him in thunder. Adonai came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain, and Adonai called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Adonai said to Moses, Go down and warn the people not to break through to Adonai to gaze, lest many of them perish. The priests also who came near Adonai must stay pure, lest Adonai break out against them. But Moses said to Adonai, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you warned us, saying, Set bounds about the mountain and sanctify it. So Adonai said to him, Go down and come back together with Aaron. But let not the priests or the people break through to come up to Adonai, lest God break out against them. And Moses went down to the people and spoke to them. Lisa, you, you hear how confusing and convoluted come up, go down, but he was already up, but he was uh, he hadn't gone down yet, but it had he gone down, and we just don't hear about it. Right? And it, it, it's purposeful. Like they, it's not like they had bad editors. Right? Um, and so the, we get all of these amazing 
nat- natural occurrences in ways that are not natural. Um, so we get the the mountain smoking because God has come down at, you know, on the mountain as fire, and the whole mountain is trembling. Right. So this is vo- very volcanic. This is there are volcanoes in this region. These they're not unknown uh, to this group of people right, writing these texts. Very much kind of a volcanic. And if you know anything about volcanoes, it is one of the most terrifying things is to be around an active volcano, right? It's, there's a lot of smoke. There's a lot of trembling. There's a lot of fire. There's a lot going on there. So it's, it's one of the most powerful images that can be used uh, is this idea of fire and smoke and the mountain trembling violently, right? And then the blare of a horn that gets louder and louder and Moshe spoke and God answers in thunder, right? So every frightening, well, awesome, I would say, every awesome natural thing, phenomenon you could imagine, right, is being uh, invoked here. And God comes down onto Sinai on the top of the mountain and has this like conversation with Moshe about going to warn the people. And Moshe's like, what are you talking about? They can't come up here. Like, what do you mean? And God's like, well, just be sure they don't, right? Um, so there's concern. There's concern by God for the people. God is concerned for the people. So we, we don't often tend to read it like that. We tend to read it as, lest I break out against them, meaning lest I punish them. Yeah. And, and what God seems to be suggesting is, there's, there's a breaking out that can happen. There's a breach that can happen. And if that happens while my power is fully activated and engaged, the results are going to be people die. Right? We've talked about this a lot with the Mishkan, that it's nuclear. And if you are not in the right suit, if you don't take the right precautions when you're dealing with nuclear energy, terrible things are going to happen. Nothing's wrong with the energy. If the energy isn't bad or malicious, the energy is the energy. And if you don't behave appropriately with it, terrible, terrible things are going to happen from that energy. That doesn't intend it, right? It's just, it's just what it is. Um, all right. This, and we're not, in this Parsha, going to get any talking. That's next week. Next week, uh, God spoke all these words saying, right? We're going to get all the Midrashim on that next time um, and there are lots and lots and lots of them so we're going to look at Michael Lerner Rabbi Michael Lerner (gasps) that was not a good sound Um, so I'm trying to make it easy that they're stapled so that we don't have the usual chaos. The most freaky thing to me here is the rest are natural phenomenon you can see in nature, but that, the blare of the shofar getting louder and louder. Who's blowing it? I mean, that would be very scary. Really freaky? Yeah. Very dramatic. Very dramatic. It's, it's meant to be extremely dramatic. Years ago, they laid out courses 
seems like the court, the Supreme Court, and the federal courts, the state courts, the small claims courts, all those years ago. There's a lot in Torah that actually informed the American democracy. Uh, if you look at Deuteronomy, there was a, I have a huge article <laughs> that I still have not gotten all the way through ever, um, a huge article on Deuteronomy and the American democratic system. And that the, the, the direct ties to the structure of the law and, and the courts and the, the checks and balances. And um, it's very, very interesting. You have your packet, so you're going to look at the first, you're going to look at the first paragraph. This chapter on Revelation by Rabbi Michael Lerner is entitled, Something Happened. <laughs> Something Happened. Go to the middle of that paragraph. Yet what it records, buried in the midst of the people trying to recount its own development, is an event monumental and transparently true. That at some point in our history as a people, we got it. We together received and accepted a message that we have a special obligation to live in accord with a transcendent view of the world. This getting it is not simply the enlightenment of a single soul or a small group of special enlightened gurus, philosophers, artists, wise men or women, spiritual seers or mystics. The remarkable claim of Torah is that an entire people got it at the same time. And in a sense, all stood at Sinai together. And as the Midrash wisely adds, not only those living at that historical moment, but also all future generations were at Sinai so that all of us heard the message together and all of us can remember how we heard it. An important uh, metaphor is what he's saying, but a metaphor that is about what's true. It's not just a nice thought that we're going to project right into poetry. He, he's suggesting this is the truth. Something happened. And we as a people got it. That for me, right there, we could stop right there. Right? That, that's revelation for me. And is what compels me to continue to use that metaphor. And it, it is still a really powerful and compelling one for me. The idea that we got it as a people and, are, and remember getting it. It's a far more powerful statement to me that we got it, rather than remember that you were slaves in Egypt. That statement that we got it is like the continuation of the remember we were slaves and much more significant. Go to the next page. The very the second paragraph. The very way that this story has been told from generation to generation is good evidence that something happened and that something happened to an entire people, not just a few people. But there's another way to look at the story, that the something that happened was the telling itself. The very fact that this kind of story has been told, has taken root, and has held the moral and spiritual imagination of a people for 2,400 years is itself the story of a revelation. The ability of a people to grasp, hold, imaginatively transform and yet remain loyal to a story of liberation may be the very thing that happened. That our telling this story is the happening. And that's not a metaphor. And that is not a metaphor. That's a dinner. That's a dinner? <laughs> that's a dinner. <laughs> um, let's... Let's go to page 79. 
You are, of course, encouraged to read this whole thing at home, this Shabbat. Page 79, second paragraph. Something happened, and it shook the Jewish people very deeply. It turned us into a group that would play a vanguard role for much of subsequent history. Out of the experience of Exodus and Sinai would emerge a small group of people whose descendants would take these insights and spin off other religious traditions, including Christianity and Islam, and later psychoanalysis, Marxism, and other liberatory traditions of the modern world. Something happened to make this group conceive of itself in such a way that it would make a contribution to the world out of proportion to its numbers, a contribution that would build upon the realization that the oppression and evil in the world could be overcome. So for our purposes, let us call whatever happened the revelation at Sinai. And if you go to the next page, being commanded, page 82. You see it? The recognition we had at Sinai created for us an obligation. Once you see things in a certain kind of way, there's no going back. As with any new level of awareness, you can hide from yourself, try to lie to yourself, but only at a very high cost and with great inner turmoil. This is the high price of any vanguard in consciousness. They cannot not know what they do know, and knowing what they do know always separates them in some ways from those who do not share their understanding. As one Midrash recounts, it felt to us as if Sinai itself were being held over our heads, that we were coerced into the covenant. Right? This is one Midrash. That when God says, right, we just saw that, if you will keep my commandments, if you're, there, there's one Midrash that says that God went to every other people first. And Israel was the last people, the straggly little ragtag group of mixed multitude, nothing. God comes to them and the last people God approaches says, Na'asev anishma, we will listen, I mean, we will do, and then we will hear it. Like every other people said, well, let's wait and see what's in it before we agree to this whole thing. Um, and the Jewish people were the only ones. On that very same page of Midrash, is this right below it, not even separated by a paragraph, is the next story which says, God came to the people of Israel, lifted up Mount Sinai, held Mount Sinai over the people, and said, do you accept my covenant? <laughs> those Midrashim are on the same page. You have to love, what a crazy people. Right? That, that those two stories are on the same page. Um, that, that we were the only ones to accept and that we were, we accepted with the mountain hanging over our heads. And what Lerner is saying is that sense of coercion is because once you get it, you can't unget it. So this is what I was trying to say, I think earlier about not, there's no, we as a people get it. And once we got it, the evil and this world can be transformed and we therefore are obligated to do that. We can turn away from that. We can lie to ourselves about that. We can get all adamant and refuse. I don't have to. You can't make me. You're not the boss of me. We can do all of that if we want to. That's fine. It does not change the fact that the kind of inner turmoil that will cause will eventually do something not so helpful right, for you because we get it. And once you get it, once you know it, you can't not know what you know now. 
hence the mountain over our heads. We, we sometimes are dragged into living the covenant. I know I feel that way sometimes, right? I'm tired. I don't want to have to be nice. I don't want to have to do something else and call a senator. I don't want, I don't want to. I'm tired. I worked hard this week. No. Right? But, but we have to. We, we, right? We, we are, we know we're obligated. We can get all cranky about it and that's fine. But we can't not know or not feel obligated. A different group wants to make a deal. A different group wants yeah, to make a deal. Some people want to make a deal. They're not going to do it unless they can make a deal. They're very good deal makers. Yeah. Yeah. We we did not make a very we did not make a very good deal. I'll I'll have to say. Well, <clears throat> to me this is interesting because it, it sounds like it's almost more God's need than people's need. And tell me in what way? God needs to have, presuming the God who created everything, needs to have some responsible people on his, on his earth. Uh, and uh, maybe he went to everybody and, it, you know, he was at his wit's end. <laughs> but whatever, the story really sounds to me a bit like this is seriously God's need to have the people in a covenant. Yes, de- definitely, because there's another option, right? The other option is God just takes care of it, God's self. Or that doesn't chaos seem to be, rules. or chaos, or right, or there's no presence of God. Either God stays out of it, and it's planet of the <laughs> crazy people, uh, or God intervenes. And it is very clear that Jewish tradition understands the way God intervenes is to invite us into partnership. We are. It's the same thing Jethro told Moshe. You've got to involve the people. You, there has to be, we have to be a relationship. Knowing that the world both can and ought to be changed gave the Jewish people a sense of being commanded. The written Torah that we have is the record of the moment in history when the Jewish people understood that their laws and conduct must embody mutual recognition. It was all an elaboration of the first commandment. The critical task is to recognize God, to recognize God in one another, God in everything, and then to act in the world in a way consonant with that understanding. And this, Robert, is the thing that only human beings can do. Only human beings can do this. Recognize God in everyone and everything and then act accordingly. And the rest of the Torah is an attempt by this group of people 2,400 years ago to figure out what that means. We are still commanded. We are still obligated. Our job is to look through it every single year, every Shabbat, every Friday at 945, and decide what parts of this are still intact. This is just their best attempt to figure out. The laws that are coming are their best attempt as a society to figure out what does it mean if I believe and know and see God in everyone and everything? What behavior is then required of me when I have a party on my rooftop? It requires that you put a fence around it so that no one falls off and gets hurt. That's what's required. We we know you build a swimming pool. You have to put a fence around it because a toddler can wander and do wander in there and drown. It's your responsibility. Everything flows from this learner saying from this awareness and this knowledge. And our job is to continue to reconstruct 
the tradition to say, what does it therefore call from me now? And what things do we say? Okay, it, those were the attempt of the people 2,400 years ago to live this. We don't share their worldview. So those laws no longer speak to us. But protecting the widow and the orphan and the stranger, there's a lot to be done with that one right now. Am I right? Yes. There's a lot for us to be called into around that right now in this moment in history. And we are a people that may not do anything about it, but we know we have an obligation to and are reneging on that obligation. That is what I think learners brilliant beautiful insight about revelation is is we got it and now we know if we don't help the stranger the vulnerable the marginalized the silenced the ones who are being rounded up and are terrified if we don't do something we are reneging on what we know we are commanded to do this this is the way jewish tradition is reconstructed he would say renewed right jewish renewal is is his way of talking about it. it doesn't matter it's the same business that it's our obligation because we get it that we are obligated because the world can be transformed and we are the only ones who can do that i don't mean jews i mean human beings are the only ones who can do that right i encourage you to read uh, the rest of this at home i encourage you actually to buy his book because it is i go back to it over and over and over again it just doesn't lose It's power. Uh, the book is called Jewish Renewal, I think. Yeah, by Rabbi Michael Lerner, and it's uh, it's an inspiring read. That I, like I said, I keep coming back to. You don't read it once and go, okay, that was good, <laughs> right? You know, you underline and highlight and write in the margins, and and, he, and he's challenging. Believe me, he's very challenging um, in terms of challenging us, right? He's very left. And uh, very political, and it's a it's a very interesting read. Who brought my older son back to Judaism during his atheistic phase? <laughs> Michael Lerner did yeah. reading Michael Lerner. Yeah, because right? it's he's very he's pra- he's very practical. Like he yeah. he's very practical in terms of what it what this stuff means for us. I'm going to close with the poem by Merle Feld called Sinai and it's in your prayer book so you should just I always want you to know when it comes from the prayer book because you should know that there's gorgeous stuff in here that nobody ever sees the men rushed ahead they always do in battle to defend us in eagerness to get the best view to be there with each other as a community we followed later some of us waited till we were done nursing Others waited to go together with those who were still nursing. Most of us were herding several children, carrying a heavy two-year-old on one hip. It's hard to move forward quickly with a heavy two-year-old on one hip. Last came the very pregnant ones. When you're that far along, it's your instinct to be afraid of crowds, afraid of being jostled. You hang back. You feel safer being last. Anyway, I was one of the ones with a heavy two-year-old on one hip. Such a sweet body he had. Warm, soft, delicious flesh. He was afraid of the noise. He clung to me so tightly, his fingers in my neck, his face buried in my neck. I showered him with little kisses, not so much to comfort him as out of habit and my pleasure. The earth shook. It vibrated. And so did I. My chest, my legs, all vibrating. 
I sank to my knees, all the while with this little boy attached to me, trying to merge himself back into me. I closed my eyes to be there more intensely. It all washed over me wave upon wave upon wave. And afterwards, the stillness of a nation, a people who had been flattened, forever imprinted, slowly raising themselves, rising again from the earth. How to hold on to that moment, washed clean, reborn, holy silence. Wow. May we find ways to access that moment, that holy moment that we got it. And sometimes it flattens us, brings us to our knees, and other times it's the quiet call that's always going out from Sinai, telling us to do the right thing, to do the right thing, to do the right thing. Shabbat Shalom. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.